Well, good morning, Rooftop, as we kind of get things settled up here. My name is Jeremy. Many of you hopefully by now know me. I'm the pastor of Small Groups and Connections here at Rooftop, and I am excited. Thank you, Anna, very, very much. Excited to be able to preach to you this morning, talking about some of those things that historian Tom Holland mentioned. And one of those things is this. Did you know that your brain has been altered in a very profound way. It's been physically altered in a way that is totally unique to human brains in the past. The neurological circuitry of your brain has been changed. It's been changed so that you would gain a certain skill or if any Taken fans are in the house, a particular set of skills. Interestingly, your brain, it's been changed after you were born. This change is not in your DNA. So you could scan two brains and see which one has the skill, but you couldn't look at two codes of DNA and see which one has the skill. Build some drama here. But that skill allows you to read the words on that book, to read the bulletin you may have gone, to read your Bible. That skill is literacy, global literacy. Being able to read is a gift the church has given to humanity. And that's just one of the many different ways, as Tom Holland mentioned, uniquely Christian things. It's so pervasive that it's almost like we are goldfish swimming in a goldfish bowl and we we don't recognize the bowl the water we just kind of take it for granted and what if I told you that the church is so responsible for giving you the gift of reading that historically people can look at a map and tell how many people in that country could read what are the percentages based on how many Christians lived in that particular country? Like I said, it's just so commonplace, we don't even think about it. Have you ever seen this question being raised, maybe on Twitter or maybe on Facebook? Or maybe What's the most influential book you've ever read? What's the most influential book in your life? It's not even close, whether you agree with its tenets or not, that the Bible is the most influential book in your life. And this morning, I want to talk about the unique contributions that the church has given the world. And this topic is fascinating to me for a few reasons. I have always been fascinated by history. On the screen, you see this is, these are called kids, these are called encyclopedias, okay? Now, you might not be aware of this, but before the internet, um, basically humans put all the knowledge that they had into these books. And I had a set of books just like this. And I remember being a kid and walking up and just getting a letter out and then just sitting there and just like flipping through the pages and reading it. An encyclopedia is basically if you took Wikipedia and then you put only the things that were really important and you put it in book form. That's what an encyclopedia was. And I would just get them out and I would just read. I would just flip through them. I would read all about these historical characters, Charlemagne Trajan, uh, Captain Robert Smalls, uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, just people who lived these incredible lives. And I began to just read and figure, and I was always fascinated with, man, how did the world get the way that it is? 
Secondly, in talking about unique contributions the church has made to the world and why it's important to me is I became a Christian later in life, actually during college while I was majoring in history. So I was studying about history, studying about how we got this world, and then I introduced this Christianity thing and it began to make sense and understand how the church uniquely contributed to things, both good and unfortunately in some cases for the bad, and we'll get into some of that later. And I just remember, I mean, even as a kid and even as an adult and even last year reading some books on history, just how fascinated I became by how our world is uniquely shaped by Jesus and his followers. Up until a couple years ago, I used to always wonder, man, why did I major in history? It's not necessarily the most lucrative um, (laughs) uh, major in in college. But as questions about historical implications of race in America, uh, implications on is Christianity even a good thing, over the past couple of years, just, I was like, man, Lord, yes, like, thank you. Like, <laughs> yes, I, I love this stuff. This really matters. It's really important. Is the church a good thing? People are asking it. Not only do I believe that it is a good thing, I believe it's the very best thing for the world. Jesus described his followers this way. He said, you are are the salt of the earth. I believe that. And we're going to talk about what it means to be salt of the earth as we continue in in our series, six reasons reasons why I might lose my faith and six reasons I won't. We're looking this morning at the profound impact the church has made on the world. And we're talking about compelling reasons now to believe in God. Well, why do we do this? It's not just so that we'll believe that you could just go home and get out the spiritual test and say, okay, boom, I believe in God. We're not doing this just for mental exercises. We're doing this because our hope is that you will join the church, not rooftop church, although we would love to have you join us, the capital C church around the world in, in working for and with God in the renewal of all things. Think about last week, Matt laid out the cosmological argument for the belief in God, right? That everything that has a beginning has to have a beginner. Now, why did he do this? Is it just so you can check some boxes? No, he did this because he wants you to come become fully alive and awaken to the call of God on your life. And when you look out in the realities of the world, you don't just go, oh, okay, yeah, there's a God. All right, now, you know onto McDonald's. No, that you look out to it and you go, oh my gosh, this is incredible. What is this God asking of me? And this is really what he's asking. He wants to know you and be known by you. And we want to come alive and join God in the works that God's people have always done since the very beginning. If you are a Christian, you've been following Jesus You've been in church. Maybe you know this man named Abraham. God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And this is what he said to Abraham. And it goes all the way down the line until us this morning. God told him that his family would be a blessing to the world. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Is that how you think about the church? Is that how you think about yourself? Do you think you exist to tangibly bless the world? Not just in a spiritual way, although the spiritual things are incredible. They are amazing. 
but blessing the earth, blessing its people in tangible ways. There are numerous examples. In our clip, Tom Holland mentioned a few, and this morning we want to double down on some of those and look at evidences that I think prove that the church is the greatest force of good in the world. Let's look back at our example earlier, literacy. Being able to learn how to read. Now, a skeptic might say, well, how can you tell that Christianity is uniquely responsible for literacy, right? Christians didn't invent words. They didn't invent languages. People have always been reading and writing. That is correct. Scholars say that the first formative language system was established 5,000 years ago. But what scholars have also noticed is that throughout all time, up until recently, only about 10% of a culture's population could read. And often the percentages were even lower. So yes, there's always been languages, but the unique Christian contribution is that everyone should learn how to do it. Educating the masses is uniquely Christian. When did this take off? This changed around the 1500s. You can look at literacy rates. You see how they explode across Western Europe. So much so that in the course of 200 years, European countries close to a specific country had populations where over half the had populations where over half of them were literate. And it began in some countries where only 1% of the population was literate. Now, why? What all of a sudden happened to cause people to start learning how to read? Think about this. There were no public schools in the 14th century. Some of you kids out there may be like, I thought you were saying these were positive things that church has done, right? There was no school. Yes, there was no school. There were some schools for elites, but your average boy and girl didn't just wake up and go to school. Why? Farmers don't need to learn how to read. Bakers don't need to learn how to read. They need to learn how to cook. Soldiers don't need to learn how to read. They need to go fight. What changed? On Halloween, 1517, in a small German charter town named Wittenberg, a disgruntled monk named Martin Luther walked up to the doors of the church and he hammered some Questions, some things he was upset about, right? This was kind of tweeting before it was tweeting. He went up and he posted these things. And during this time, listen to this, when Martin Luther got started, 1% of Germany could read. 200 years later, half of Germany could read. One of the things that he posted on that was that he believed that God wanted to know people personally and that they needed to know God personally. To do that, men and women needed to read the Bible for themselves instead of just relying on professionals. Everyone needed to learn how to read. A few years later, Luther wrote a pamphlet. Now, listen to this this title. If this doesn't grip you, I don't know what will. To the councilmen of all cities in Europe that they establish and maintain Christian schools. <laughs> Apparently Luther was as bad at naming things as I am. 
And what Luther did in this pamphlet was he called parents and secular leaders to teach people how to read and write. Now, even that term secular, this is a little side note, I can't get into it totally. Even that word secular, you've heard that, you say that, that's a uniquely Christian term. No one talked that way before Christians came around. If you were to go in a time machine, you were to go back before Christian influence, and you were to go to, let's say, India, and said, hey, what's the religion of India? They would look at you like you were crazy. What, what do you mean? We, what's the religion? What? This is just what we do. <laughs> this is just who we are. Like, there is no difference. But Luther was calling earthly, secular, whatever you want to say, rulers to educate children. This is the birth of public schools. England, the United States, would all draw emphasis, would all draw its origins from this moment, from this teaching. Now, this is pre-industrial revolution. This is pre-formation of cities and governments. The only emphasis for people to read was to read the Bible. Now, let me explain how impactful this was. It's a little technical, but I think we can get it. 300 years after Luther had done this, sociologists, scientists, they have proven this. You get out a map. For every 100 miles you go outside of Wittenberg, you could draw a circle. For every 100 miles you go out, the population of Protestants would drop 10%. What they found was that every 100 miles you go out, you know what else dropped? Literacy rates and the presence of schools. It vastly improved women as well. Literacy. Outside of Europe, the more Protestants that were found in a country, the higher rates of female literacy there were. Why does this matter? Well, this matters because it's statistically proven that babies of literate mothers tend to be healthier, brighter, more prosperous as adults than children of illiterate mothers. It's estimated that there are 171 million people in the world that if they could just simply learn how to read, they would be raised out of poverty. But we, we, we don't even think about it, right? We don't even think about reading. We don't think about teaching people. to. We just assume, yeah, everyone should learn how to read. Let me end this little section here with a quote by Joseph Heinrich. He's a professor and chair of human evolutionary biology department at Harvard University. He's not a believer. He wrote a book called Weird People. Oh, sorry, Weirdest People in the World. Fascinating read. I would encourage all of you to read it. This is a quote. He says, the spread of a religious belief that every individual should read the Bible for themselves led to a diffusion of widespread literacy among both men and women first in Europe and later across the globe. Broad-based liter literacy changed people's brains, altering their cognitive abilities in domains related to memory, visual processing, facial recognition, numerical exactness, and problem solving. It's probably almost also indirectly altered family sizes, children, 
child health, and cognitive development. As mothers became increasingly literate and formally educated, these psychological and social changes may have further have fostered speeder innovation, new institutions, and in the long run, greater economic prosperity. That's just one example. Heinrich writes this. Not a Christian. He writes this. All these things, literacy, propelling the societies of Christendom down a historical pathway not available elsewhere. There was something unique about these cultures and these places that Christianity brought that were not available elsewhere. What are some of those? Then let's talk about our other point here. Human rights, sexual ethics. In 2017, Alyssa Milano tweeted the following. If you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet. In this moment, the Me Too movement gained a platform. It had been going on since 2006. Some other people doing this work. But this kind of took off on Twitter. And overnight, it felt like powerful men in our culture and country began to get exposed. Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, the list seemed to go on and on and on. People accusing powerful men of doing inappropriate things. Now think about this. No one got on TV and said, well, what's wrong with a powerful man having his way with his social inferiors? Why not? Why didn't anybody get up there and and make a case? Hey, they should be able to do that. Well, well, one, there would have been such a collective. I mean, we would have, people would have lost their minds. They should lose their minds if someone was to get up and say that. But why? Why didn't anybody? Why do we just take it for granted that that's not how it's supposed to be? When the overwhelming majority of human history, that's exactly how it was. The strong have a right to do what they want to the weak. Might makes right. Maybe you've heard that before. But no one argued that point. Why? Because Christianity had so influenced the world that it just seems preposterous to get up there and try to argue that. Let's look at the world Christianity was born into. Maybe people have always thought that, right? Maybe it just how it was and Christianity kind of stole it. Christianity was birthed in the world of Rome Rome and Greece, classic antiquity is sometimes it's called. And both of these civilizations, sexual ethics was not based on man and woman. They were based on who has power and who doesn't. And people in Rome, those were free male citizens. That's who had power. The Roman, the Greek, the classical world, not just in Greece and Rome, but all over was a Harvey Weinstein world. Now, we have children among us, so I won't get into how disturbing some of these were. But the, the reality was this. A male in this society could do whatever they wanted with anyone of a lower class. Any orifice a slave had could be used however 
and no one batted an eye. No one asked a question. No one said, should we be doing this? So how did the world go from that to the world in which we live? Which I would say, and I hope all of you would agree, is a much better place. The teachings of a crucified criminal. (laughs) The teachings of Jesus. Think about Jesus for a moment. A man with no power, a man with no social clout, no political power, executed by Rome. What is the crucifixion of Jesus? But not a complete reversal of the world's view of power. The weak have power in God's kingdom. We don't even think about that nowadays. Why shouldn't Putin roll into Ukraine? He's got the army, do it. It seems so foreign for us to even think differently. One of Jesus' earlier followers was a man named Paul. And even in Paul's early letters, you can start to see the seeds of this taking fruit and growing. As he's writing to churches and he says, there's, there's slaves among you. There's people who own slaves among you. They're in the church worshiping together. He's talking about this. And what Paul, the paradigm in which he saw everything that the crucifixion of Jesus made so plain to him was that Jesus came and died because of his love for humanity. And Paul took that ethic and he said, love is now the basis of dynamics. A sexual relationship with another person now is based on love. It's not based on who has the power to do it. It's based on love inside of something so uniquely Christian, we don't even think about monogamous marriage. I don't think we think about how radical it is. If you were to take all the marriages throughout all time and space and put them on a chart, monogamous marriage would be so small, it would be so tiny, it would be a blip, less than a blip on the map. You're thinking, is, well, is that really that big of a deal? Like monogamous marriage? Well, the, op, the other alternative is polygamy, right? Where you can have multiple husbands and wives. But have you ever noticed this? Usually when you read in history, you read about polygamous marriage, it's never one woman who has multiple husbands. What is it? It's one man who has multiple wives. Let me just, real quick... Just one tiny influence monogamy has on a culture. Let's say we all live in a town and there's 10 men and 10 women in the town, okay? And in this town, you got studs like Skyler and Matt Herndon, you know. Um, They're probably able to gain multiple wives. What do guys like me, right, 9 and 10, what are we going to do? Well, in order to do that, we maybe got to do some questionable things, right? Maybe we take someone's life. Maybe we rob someone to have more money so that we can have some power so that we can get a wife. We don't even think about how disruptive it would be if there wasn't monogamy. And in Roman marriage, a man, and even in some cases women, could just do what they wanted to people lower than them. 
Jewish marriages were historically easy to dissolve. But Paul comes along and says, you don't get to do that anymore. He came along and he said, men, you are the image of Christ. And Christ doesn't go around forcing himself on his social inferiors. He went and he said, men, when you marry a woman, you are like Christ marrying the church. That is a dignity given to women and a challenge given to men that had not existed before this teaching. He was, men, women are not your playthings. They are not here, they were not created to be abused. I don't care if they're a slave girl or they're an aristocrat. That's what Paul says. They have an inherent dignity because they were created in God's image. This was a teaching. This was a belief that I cannot express to you, unless I had like a few more hours and a few more books, how different this was than other places. The church went on to transform marriage and families based around this. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That they should commit for their entire life. And that command is based on love. Not on social dynamics. Not on, is it going to help your family if you marry this person? Well, if they don't want to, you should force them to marry. No, it was based on love. This was a revolution. Calling men to control themselves and not be monsters is a revolution that the world had not known up until this point. It spread into the Americas as the Puritans came to America and they carried the similar ethic. Now, if you know a little bit about the Puritans, sometimes they could take it too far. Some areas, they completely whiffed it. But this understanding that you are to control yourself, that you are to honor other people, especially women, and you remain committed, was a powerful thing among the Puritans. No more extramarital affairs, no more paying women for other services. Because of love, because of inherent dignity. And listen, I mean... (laughs) You've grown up in the world. You know that marriage is hard. (laughs) You know that marriage is tough. You know that we don't always live up to it. You know we make mistakes. You know that we stumble and fall. But this is an anchor belief for Christians. This is what we believe Jesus taught. And this continued through America in some ways incredibly beautiful and poignant. And in some ways I look back and I read it and I say, How bad did we whiff this? How could they not have seen that? The belief that every human has dignity is so powerful that when the people got together to make up our country, they they were so torn because they wanted to keep slavery. Some of them really wanted to have slavery, but they knew in their minds people have inherent dignity. So what did they do? They created categories. Well, these people aren't really people they're like you know three-fifths a person right so I'm saying never been perfect never done it exactly the way it's supposed to but the teaching that people have inherent dignity so transformed the world 
dignity, love. These things continued on pretty much unquestioned until the 60s when there was the last kind of most tremendous upheaval in American politics was the 60s. I don't know if you are familiar with this, but it was. Martin Luther King Jr. came. And what was he talking about? He was saying that based on the teachings of Jesus, which I think is incredible, that the 60s civil rights movement was uniquely a Christian movement, that even the oppressed minorities in our country have a right to dignity and love. So many other groups jumped on board with this. Feminists. Gay marriage campaigners picked up on this theme. That's why Tom Holland, in a book that he wrote called Dominion, says all of our cultural wars that we're fighting right now, they're civil wars. They're based on teachings that are Christian. Now, that, I'm not, they can get distorted. They can get changed. They can lose the doctrines that they're tethered to. But they're all crying out for this. Dignity. Love. Now, one way I can show you how uh, it can go sideways and how you can take uh, this Christian view of dignity and love and distort it and really mess things up is what else happened in the 60s? Well, the free love movement, right? That love is just a physical thing that you need to express with whoever you want to. You don't need to be committed in marriage. Marriage is some old archaic medieval thing. We need to cast that off and you need to be able to make love. I'm noticing now the kids on the front row. Uh, Whoever you want. That's in some ways some of the world we're currently living in, right? Movies, TV, just this how you do it. But what has that produced? More Harvey Weinsteins. More Harvey Weinsteins. But what's interesting is, you know who combats Harvey Weinstein? In the Golden Globes, there was uh, a protest of women. They were, they were dressed up in something called The Handmaid's Tale, right? If you've seen The Handmaid's Tale, it's a show uh, about a dystopian future where Christian fundamentalism has taken over. And, and they wear this as kind of mocking, right? They're mocking it. Like, you can't treat us like this. This is how they, they dress in the show. You can't treat us like this. But what are they really asking? They're asking that men control themselves, which is what? What the Puritans taught, what Jesus taught. So in this ironic way, they are mocking. They think they're mocking Christianity, but in reality, they're asking for inherently Christian things. Now, let me just shift really fast and talk about some potential rebuttals to these things. You might be sitting here and you might be asking, but what about all the evil the church has done? Jeremy, you kind of paint a flowery picture here, but what about the evil it's done? There's no denying that people who claim Jesus have done really horrible things. Some of those claim Jesus simply to gain power, but I'm not going to just let that be the scapegoat. Some people who authentically claim Jesus Christ as their Lord have done horrible things. We don't have to look outside of our country. We can look in our very country. Chattel slavery in America was vehemently structured and propagated and defended by people who claim Christ. I read two books on it last year. If you're interested in it, come talk to me. Yet, it was also vehemently opposed by people who claimed Christ. 
I don't say that as we pat ourselves on the back and just ignore the bad things. The belief that every person has unique dignity led Christians in America, founded, established by a Quaker and eventually an evangelical movement to overturn slavery. That's why I appreciate things like the Bible is they don't try to hide and cover up the mess, right? Because God's bigger than the incredibly hurtful, harmful things sometimes as people have done. He's not afraid. We don't have to lie and cover it up. We can bring it into the light. But not only Christians do things in the past, some of you sit in this room right now and you've been hurt by the church in profound ways. And when I get up here and I talk about how much I love the church and how I think it's the greatest force of good and like I've given my life to this and I'm here for it, it hurts you. There's a pit in your stomach. You, you feel uneasy. I understand that. And I think more importantly, God understands that. Church hurt stings more than others because it's not supposed to be this way. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9 says, They will not hurt nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. The more we know about the Lord, the less hurt we should be doing to people. So, this is what I'd offer to you. If, you, if me talking about the church causes you to just ugh, cringe up, let's talk. Call me, email me, text me, meet me on the lobby. I want to sit down and I want to hear your story. I'm not intimidated by it. I'm not scared by it. I want to hear it. It needs to be told because that's not how it's supposed to be. And we can look back in history and see that. We can look in the Bible and see that. Maybe someone else would say, but haven't other religions also done good? Yeah, I'm not bold enough to sit up here and say, yeah, uh, we're the only ones who do good in the world. No one else does any good. What I'm saying is that the teachings of Jesus have uniquely impacted the world in specific ways. There are good things found in other religions. Other people aren't just morally bankrupt. But there's a uniqueness to the Christian movement. There's a uniqueness to America's, or sorry, there's a uniqueness to the Christianity that grew out of the Middle East and spread into Europe and spread everywhere. There's a uniqueness to it. Why? Because our movement, as we mentioned earlier, is founded on a crucified criminal. Weak people have dignity because our God became weak. A man with no possessions. That changes how you look at the world around you. So much so that in other parts of the world, even up until the 20th century, it was legal for a father to kill his son. Slavery wasn't taken off the books in some Middle Eastern countries until 1936. A very large and influential country in the world stage is just now, in the past hundred years, trying to implement the things that the church was implementing in the Middle East and into Europe thousands of years earlier. In 1930, in a huge country without historical Christian teachings, in 1930, outlawed polygamy, arranged marriage, concubines, child betrothal, forced remarriage of widows, marriage payments, infanticide. Wives finally gained 
the right to own property and to inherit it from their, their husbands. 1930. Uncle niece marriage was not banned until 1950. But does this prove that God is real? That's kind of what we're talking about this series. Does this prove that God is real? I, I think this has only scratched the surface of the positive impact the church has had on the world. There's volumes of it to be written. You're an atheist. Maybe you say, well, y'all just kind of maybe stumbled across it. Or it was in seeds in other places. And Christianity just kind of co-opted it. I think that's patently false, as we've shown today, as we've read about. Because I think this, Pastor Duke Kwan wrote this about the uniqueness of the Christian message. One of the unique characteristics of the God of the Bible, indeed it sets him apart from every deity in every other religious system, is his relentless identification with the powerless, vulnerable, and abused. This should be the distinguishing mark of his covenant people also. And what I will tell you is for 2,000 something years, this has been the mark. Yeah, maybe other places it's gone away and got si- gone sideways. But this has been the mark of God's people. So my ask for you this morning is to reflect and think about the words of Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 12. When he looked at his followers and he said, very, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. Think about the works Jesus did. And in fact, we'll do greater works than these because I go to the Father. But Jesus knew that the church would take the ethos of Jesus, who cared about the poor, the disenfranchised, the broken. And they would carry that and that spirit would inhabit Paul, who would radically transform the culture around him. And the Holy Spirit would carry that all throughout time until this moment right here. And he would look at a church of people and say, join me in that greater work. Yes, there's brokenness. Yes, there's mistakes. Own them. Call them out. Bring them into the light. But join us as we reach a broken and shattered world. Why? How? By being strong, by invading countries, by imposing our will on other people? No, by caring for weak and broken and cast out people.